Welcome back to the Perseverance Podcast. My name is John Thompson. And today I have the great privilege of hanging out with a really good friend of mine, Angela Mason. Hey, Ange. Hey. How are you today? Very good. Very good. good. I'm glad you're here. So uh, some of you might know, but actually since many of you are watching this in all sorts of parts of the world, uh, Ange and I have worked together uh, informally and formally for how long? Oh, I think we first worked together over 20 years ago. Yes. And then I came on staff about 17 years ago. So I've been working with you. A long, long time. time. Yeah, I've been on staff at the church for 25 years, and you're almost there. So we've done yeah. this for a long time. And right now is, and I say right now because you've had multiple roles. Yeah, I'm not going to count how many, no. but I have been here in many transitions. <laughs> yes. And um, I'm loving what I'm doing now. Yeah, so you are the Ajax site pastor, mm-hmm. which is our uh, one of our sites in our multi-site experience. And uh, Angie's doing an amazing job. So uh, we've worked together for a long time. We've gone through a lot of ups and downs, actually some really bad stuff, some really amazing stuff. And so it's good that we get to hang out together and talk actually about perseverance and ministry together. So we're going to have um we're going to have a conversation today and it's interesting because you know probably in a thousand church podcasts this conversation is sort of normal this is what we all do. But uh why don't you introduce it and we'll get into it because I think this is a little different than what a lot of people have heard. Well, I think it is different because I think about even our own upbringing. You and I, we both grew up Baptist. Yes, so we, did. we do have that in common. We do. And um, here at Sanctus, we have intentionally decided to do things differently yeah. than how we were uh, brought up. Yeah. And so. What are some of the dis- differences? Yeah, so it's interesting. Ange and I probably share a common history that we grew up in um, in sort of Baptistic. Uh, some Americans watching this, uh, we have different denominations up here than they would down there, or you who are in England or maybe in mainland, uh, you know, in the European context. So we both, both grew up in more conservative, um, evangelical, maybe even a little fundamentalist Baptist churches, depending mm-hmm. on the moment. Uh, and, uh, I think discipleship, cause that's what we're going to talk about today. Discipleship was all about, uh, classes mm-hmm. and sort of like there was, it wasn't even a journey. It was like, you're just going to do these check boxes and we're going to do that. Mm-hmm. And then you're sort of like, it's what you do. I, mm-hmm. I think, and I, I appreciate that. I think there were some good stuff in our histories Absolutely. that we appreciated and yeah. yeah, blessings on our Baptist friends. Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, we love them. Uh, but, uh, I think what happened here in my own walk personally, and you know this, but also in the, in the um, church and as we were starting to grow and evolve in some things, uh, one of the big things that emerged that was different here, which actually is through a lot of the podcasts uh, that have already been uh, done and will be done in the future, mm-hmm. have something at the center called encounter. Mm-hmm. And we were like, this, this is the way I've put it for years. You've heard me say this a thousand times. So you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, there's, a, there's two ways of accessing knowledge. One is sort of a Greek understanding. Knowledge means I get facts. Mm-hmm. And then there's sort of this Jewish understanding of, uh, of, of knowledge is I know intellectually and I have also encountered or experienced. Mm-hmm. And I think that flavor was really different than what we grew up with. And I think when we started thinking through this intentionally here and then theologically, because I was wrestling with it, we went, oh, this thing about encountering him as a place of transformation really matters. Mm -hmm. And then we were like, what do we do with that? Yeah. But I think that was the shift from information, good truth, Mm -hmm. to truth plus meeting the one who actually gives the truth and is the truth. 
Absolutely. There's a different emphasis than what I grew up thinking about. I definitely thought like I need to be in the word and the, and the emphasis was more on gaining knowledge and how do I grow? Jesus calls us to be fully devoted, right. to be his disciples, to follow him. Where do you even start with that was, was sort of this nerve wracking type of moment when I first came out of Bible college trying to think, how do I grow? Right. How do I teach others to grow? He says, make disciples. What does that even look like? Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting because you and I have done this for a while. There's a guy I quote every year because you you know this, that probably once or twice a year I do, do two two exactly the same sermons yeah. uh, on mission, vision, and values, and also on what we're talking about today. And um, I think the week we're actually recording this, I'm actually prepping to do that very talk. Right. Uh, and it's interesting, a guy named Ray Vanderland did a ton of work on uh, religious environmental contexts of 2000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, what I loved is he helped me understand that discipleship's rooted in the rabbi culture of Judaism, mm -hmm. right? And the th two things that uh, I really appreciated uh, when he unpacked it for me was, first of all, he said, uh, don't forget that rabbis chose their students and Jesus reversed that, which blew my mind. So like, you know, um, uh, this idea that you'd go to a rabbi, sorry, you'd go to a rabbi 2,000 years ago and say, can I be your student? And he'd say yes or no. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to go choose you. So... Already that is like radical because he already says, you're going to come with me. I believe in you. But then the thing that really helped sort of solidified it for me was when he said, uh, students were desperate to think and act like their rabbi. And our whole culture is like, I need to think for myself, be independent, and I need to act the way I feel or I want. Where a Judaistic understanding of discipleship was, I want to think like someone else and act like someone else. So I was like, okay. But then the real question to what you were just wrenching is, if I'm supposed to think like Jesus, which I think we're supposed to do, we'd agree with that, mm -hmm. and act like Jesus, which every Christian would go, yeah. The question I asked privately and then asked publicly in our church is, so how do I or where do I find him? Hmm. And I don't think I was ever asked that question growing up. I think it was just presumed read my Bible and I don't know. Mm -hmm. Fair? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely fair. So what was it then that also helped you think, ah, we've, we've got to have some differences then from the emphasis before to what we're doing here at Sanctus? Yeah, so, you know, we as a staff, you were, you were on staff when this happened, but we were asking the question, like every church wants to make fully devoted followers. Like that's, you know, that's the mission statement of every local church on earth. And most people reduce it down again to like a pathway or they reduce it down to classes like, right doctrine and right living and right. And I was like, but if being a disciple is thinking like Jesus and acting like Jesus, which means you're around Jesus, then I said, oh, we have to actually change our whole worldview on discipleship. And we need to get rid of a linear thinking like A plus B equals C, or I, you know, I go around the baseball diamond, then I've done my thing and actually start asking a continuum question where can I always find Jesus? In other words, when I, started, when I started reading the scriptures really carefully, I started looking for weird language. God's everywhere. We both would say amen to that, okay? <laughs> Omnipresent. But where is he close? Where can I, we use really you know, provocative language here. Where is God's presence personally guaranteed? And I said, if that exists, then we need to base all of our discipleship in environments, places, or dimensions where I know he's in the room close. 
And that changed everything because it actually forced me as a conservative, you know, Christian, Bible-oriented person to go, the Bible that I read all the time, what does it actually say about the language I always use is palpability, closeness. Mm -hmm. And, And you and I have been pastors for a long time and you and I have been Christians for longer. And I think, so your mom, I'm a dad, uh, we have friends, and I think we would both say that expectations are really good or dangerous, relationally, like in marriage with kids, in family, and definitely in church. I think yeah. <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole nother, But I think we don't want to underpromise something to our people, and we don't want to overpromise something. But if it is promised, I want to say it's promised. So what I started asking, and staff did along with me, was, is there a place, can I get up in good conscience and say to people, there are environments that if you walk into them, you will be near the rabbi. Hmm. And if that's true, what are they theologically, biblically? And then how in the world would we translate that? I mean, we're a multi-site church, five locations, thousands of people. How how do you unveil that structurally? Because structuralism isn't bad. Mm -hmm. It's just how. So I think that's the beginning germinations of why this might be the same but different. Make Mm. sense? It makes sense. It is difficult for people when they're struggling with confidence in trying to identify, well, well, where is he? Because when you use that term guaranteed, like you're alluding, uh, that really does create an expectation. So that's a strong language. That's a a 100% emoji. How how do you say that? So how do you know what places are guaranteed then? Yeah, so as we start going through the scripture, and if I'll just pause and say, because there's a lot of church... probably mostly church leaders are listening to this, pastors, leaders, key volunteers. You're all trying in your own church context to do this well. Like mm-hmm. you want to do this too. And so we went through like a thousand variations. Um, but I'll say this, what Ange just brought up about expectation, like this is the ball game. And odd this too, the question I asked was, does this truth that I'm about to talk about transcend gender, age, educational level, preference, size of church, style of church, how the pastor looks, how they dressed. And I was like, oh my goodness, it does. And then the next thing that even blew my mind is what we're about to talk about, which I think is genuinely revolutionary. It's not new, but it's so revolutionary, is actually who's more gifted, who has money, how I'm feeling today doesn't change what we're about to say. That I went... Oh, th- th- uh, this is this is secret sauce, <laughs> in in a true sense. And so, what I started doing is I went through the scriptures very carefully and looked for language where in the scriptures it said God is here, and that's mm-hmm. the process I started. Okay, and this is what people want to know: is Jesus accessible? And so, I mean, you hit it right on by able to say, "Yes, we can find him." You got to know where to look. Exactly. And I think in most church circles, when they say you got to know where to look, it's it's mucky. It's like, yes, and. You're left on your own. And I think a lot of pastors, honestly, and theologians and, and volunteers are like, yeah, of course. But then how do you articulate this to a 16-year-old? Mm-hmm. How do you articulate this to an 80-year-old who's been faithful for 50 years and is struggling or a brand new Christian? So this is the journey we took. And, mm-hmm. and as I went through the scriptures, I came across multiple environments that were guaranteed. 
I think some of them maybe people are able to guess uh, quicker than uh, yeah, others. Uh-huh. And so I think it's really going to be helpful if we just go through the list that you have talked about here at Sanctus several times and then just explain <laughs> each one briefly. Sure, several times. Yeah. Yeah, that was no pun intended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah several times. <laughs> we've heard it, but I think it's necessary. And actually, it's just necessary to repeat because we are forgetful people. Yeah. And sometimes we may realize, oh, I thought the list was really short. And then when you realize there's actually, there's various places where guaranteed uh, you can encounter Jesus, that can get you really excited. Well, I think, and just again, for all of the leaders who are listening to this right now, who are a little jaded, skeptical, hurt, tired, sad, like all of us, um, don't turn off the podcast yet. Because um, what Ange just alluded to is about expectation again. And at the end of this, I want to talk, we want to talk actually about how this has changed the um, the literal worship environment of our church. This, this is not another program. It's, programming is important, but irrelevant at this moment. So uh, here, here we'll go. Uh, first one is the gospel. And everyone's like, yeah, 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 the gospel. Yeah, but actually. So, uh, you know, Paul, St. Paul, when he writes Romans, uh, Romans 1.16, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Right? It's the power of God of salvation, whoever believes, first for Jews and then non-Jews. Now, a lot of you, again, who do this professionally or you've done a lot of studies as a volunteer, you know this. The word power is where we get our English word dynamite from. The implication is, is, is really significant. When someone proclaims, not lives, proclaims and declares that Jesus lived, died, physically rose from the dead for the forgiveness of sins, and it's through him and him alone— when someone proclaims that, whether it's proclaimed in an Alpha course and you're hearing that, Nikki's doing his thing on the screen, or you're sharing that over a beer or a latte or a coffee with someone, however that works out, or even on a street corner, right, or in a formal gathering in a church service, we all know, yeah, yeah, that's the gospel, it's truth. But Romans 1.16 says it's living, it's dynamic. In other words, when the gospel's proclaimed, the Holy Spirit's actually in the room. And I think, Ange, you and I have talked a lot about evangelism over the years. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people feel alone already when they want to tell the gospel and are really afraid or don't know how or they're afraid if they don't have enough words. But they feel like he's not there. And so one of the things that struck me was like, oh, my goodness, when you just hear the scripture speak, when when I proclaim the gospel on a Sunday, it's he's literally it's a guaranteed place of encounter. Now, this is, the, this is when the nuance starts mattering, matter, uh, starts to matter. It doesn't actually matter if someone says yes to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Results are irrelevant in this moment. The idea, though, is I have suddenly, it's been really helpful for me. I speak for a living. You know this. I read books. I'm all over the place. I don't, do I have the gift of evangelism, Ange? Actually, no. No, actually, no. No, <laughs> I do not have the gift of evangelism. Not even close. Now, I proclaim the gospel. That's, is, I want to do that as a Christian. I share the gospel with my neighbors. I've invited people to Alpha. I, I regularly give the gospel when I preach. Mm-hmm. But what changed for me is I'm like, when I'm preaching, even outside of my gift set, I'm like, no, no, no. He's here. So the image I have is like the Holy Spirit's always hovering over and pointing to the life, death, and, and, and resurrection uh, of Jesus. So to me, uh, that's, that's, that's category one. That's environment one. That's place one. I think that's really confidence building, too, to be able to encourage someone to say that when you proclaim the gospel, right. his power is on you. 
and you don't have to be fearful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, his powers are on you. Here's the language. Jesus is in the room, like by his spirit. He's actually there. And that's the language we've started helping our people. He's actually there. Mm -hmm. It's moving from Christianity feeling like history. And yeah, yeah, it's actually helping our people. Yeah, that stuff used to happen. And it's going to be amazing in the future. But we just sort of survive in the middle. Mm -hmm. Actually, no, he's in the room. He's in the room. He's in the room. The gospel is alive. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the second one, uh, again, I think people might have guessed this one already. 100%. Second one is the scripture. Right, 100%. I mean, we are historic, orthodox, uh, conservative Christians in this, not necessarily politically, but theologically. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd use the word evangelical in the old way, not the political way. So, of course, we have a very high view of scripture in this church. We believe it's the inspired word of God. We we would use language that it is the ultimate source for faith, life, and practice, not the only source. Some people might be, what, what, what? Uh, sola Scriptura, you know, that idea from the Reformation, the Bible alone, it never meant Bible alone. It meant Bible ultimate. And we'll be talking about that in some other podcasts, but it is the ultimate source. It's the ultimate, it's the Supreme court. That's the way we would put it. And, um, you know, we say to our people at the time, if you want to hear God speak, of course, open the scriptures. Jesus's teachings are found there. God's stories, thoughts, commands, revelations, his promises, and his rebukes are all there. And, you know, we say all the time, there are 66 books, but actually there's only one real author. It's the spirit of God. And you never can divorce uh, the written word of God from the, the living word spirit. And, you know, the, the, the famous verse that many listening have obviously preached, you know, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness so the person of God can do, you know, good works, etc. Um, when we open scripture as Christians, it is a guaranteed place of encounter. Now, it doesn't mean you open the scripture and, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, I've understood all revelation. Uh, It's not like that, Uh, but it is guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And I, again, that helps move things from dryness to expectation a lot of times. So that's... That's a pretty significant, well, it's a very significant one here. Yeah. Yeah, easily it is. And I think for many people, they can open up the word of God and hear... God speak to them through what they're saying or is helping them to understand. Um, and, and that is actually a way that I feel like he speaks to me, but I know others in my own connect group who would say, ah, he speaks clearly as well through, (coughs) through prayer. Um, and so I think like, as we start to talk about some of the other guaranteed places of encounter, we're going to get there. And how does God encounter us um, through those? So let's talk about then prayer is one of, but let's talk about what are spiritual disciplines or holy habits. Yeah. So this is a, this is a big thing for us because we formally introduced spiritual disciplines, holy habits, spiritual, um, this spiritual side of life, contemplative life, if you want to put it that way probably in 2011, and it was not in our history at all here. You know, not not at all. And so uh, the way we framed it and rooted it was, uh, the phrase we use here, spiritual disciplines are the only ongoing guaranteed place of transformation after you've met God through Christ. And so uh, just lean in as I'm saying this. Now, some of you who are contemplative, you hang out with John Mark Homer, my friend, and that, that crew, you're like, yeah, yeah, let's go, Dallas Willard people. Others of you are like, I don't know. So... Let me just frame it like this, like we frame it in our own community. Um, Jesus used spiritual disciplines to listen to the Father. To be a disciple of Jesus means I think like him and I act like him. 
which means spiritual disciplines are non-negotiable for an average life, a Christian life. And here's the thing. Spiritual disciplines don't get God's attention. Uh, you know, I, God's ear doesn't get closer to the ground when I fast or pray or solitude, silence, uh, biblical meditation. All, you know, there's all sorts of them. But here's the thing. Spiritual disciplines actually force me and force us to slow down. They clear the ground so I actually can hear. Spiritual disciplines are about prepping me to prepare myself to hear him. Mm-hmm. And um, they are critical because Jesus, you know, between uh, Christmas and Easter, um, of course, only did what his father told him to do, which is unbelievable, right? And only was led by the spirit. So he never stopped being the second person of the Trinity. He never de-evolved. He never emptied himself. The, the phrase we use all, here all the time is, uh, he remained God and is God and will always be God, but he chose not to use or access who he was to model for us what a normal Christian life looks like. Which, by the way, is a, from the first podcast, we talked a lot about that. Why this matters is, if you're a Christian listening or you're a Christian leader and leading a community, you got to remind your people they're actually possessed by the Spirit. Like the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, uh, to make it funny, a non-sentient, non-human being that is not you lives inside of you, mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit. And how to listen to him is integrated with spiritual disciplines. So we said to our people, if Jesus used disciplines to hear the Father and keep in step with the Spirit, we have to. And then we went, oh my goodness, since we're possessed and he's in us, it is a guaranteed place of encounter. And that raised a lot of eyebrows because it almost feels new agey. Like if you listen to new age people, they're like, find the God inside of you or do the inward journey. And we're like, run. But for Christians, he is inside of you. He is, a, he is in us. And so spiritual disciplines, obviously in community and in, in, in by ourselves with scripture, becomes a guaranteed place of transformation. And if we're not doing them, we're missing this vast experience. So we started saying to our church, spiritual disciplines aren't optional. They're necessary and they're guaranteed. And I think the thing about spiritual disciplines um, that's interesting is because uh, they do take action. They, you are participate, participating right. in something, right? Like you have to do something. Correct. Even if you're meditating, you're being intentional. Um, about the scriptures. About right. the scriptures. Right. But it is who you're seeking to encounter. Right. And I mean, again, not for this podcast. How do you hear God's voice? How do you know who's speaking to you? That's a, a stuff we'll talk about probably later. I think the critical thing is saying to your community, when's the last time you even do these? Do you have a common script for your community? Is this center pointed even in your own staff culture, your elders culture? Like, is it defined? You have common language around this because it is one of the most central things Jesus does. So how can it not be for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So probably helpful just to give language to it for us to list what those spiritual disciplines are. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's tons. Mm-hmm. Um, simplicity, confession of sin, prayer, fasting, service, solitude, silence, studying God's word. Um, there's, you, know, you can read um, all sorts of authors that work through, through this in different ways. That's just some of them. Mm-hmm. But I think, again, for our people, it was a really huge shift and it, it it is, it's been hard, but good. Mm-hmm. That's the best way of saying it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that you have talked about, the next um, uh, guaranteed place that I think that we should emphasize is something else that you've talked about a lot. A lot. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that is uh, spiritual gifts. You made the joke earlier uh, about you not having the gift of evangelism. Yeah. Um, so how come it's important to know about spiritual gifts and to know what is your gift and what isn't your gift? Yeah. So we've talked about this a little bit already in some of the other podcasts and we're going to do it again, but this is how this ties into this conversation. Um, uh, when we were trying, I personally was trying to understand what to do and we were trying to do as a staff. I mean, we're up in Toronto, right? So Toronto, po- genuinely post-Christian, uh, repaganizing actually 6.4 million, fourth largest city in North America. A lot of Americans, you probably don't know that. Uh, most multicultural city on earth, according to the United Nations, 300 heart languages spoken. And so we're in this pluralistic, multicultural, post-Christian, paganizing. In this moment, I would say it used to be choose your own adventure. I'm glad you're a Christian. Isn't that nice for you? It's now become hostile. We think Christianity is dangerous, almost un-Canadian, it's been stated at points. And so we're trying to navigate sort of how do we do really well in this moment? Like, how do we do this? And as I did all this work, uh, historically, I was trying to say, how did every generation of Christians that were facing down really tough times come back to life? And I found one of the themes was spiritual gifts. And I was like, oh, so this can't be something you do through some test and three people take it. And by the way, side note, not this podcast, but tests don't work because they presume that you've done all the things. Mm. So just... We'll talk about that for another day, but like that doesn't help very much. So um, the real thing that happened here that actually led uh, led to a renewal is that uh, we started making spiritual gifts the center point of what we do along with disciplines, like twin sisters or two sides of a coin. And then we unpacked how actually Jesus himself used spiritual gifts. And if Jesus used spiritual gifts, just like he used spiritual disciplines, then we as the body of Christ have to do it too. Why does that, why is it guaranteed? Because when you use a spiritual gift, a spiritual gift isn't something you learn or you're born with. We all have natural gifts. We all, we all have gifts that we uh, are born with. So some people are born smart. Some people are born athletic. I always jokingly say, you know, some people can, are born and they can play basketball and it's in their DNA. It would be a spiritual gift if I could do that. <laughs> I would need the spirit of the living God to do anything related to basketball, but they don't. You can go to school, university, college, apprenticeship, and you learn incredible things. Now, can you use natural gift and acquired gifts for the kingdom? Of course you can, but they're not guaranteed places of power. When you use a spiritual gift, Actually, the Spirit of God is literally partnering with you, or actually, we're partnering with Him. And the power source that we're accessing isn't us. We're accessing a well that's not even us, a power that's not even us. And actually, when we use spiritual gifts, it's guaranteed because we have an authority, power, and ability because He's in the room to do that thing. Most people don't think about spiritual gifts like that. Mm-hmm. So, that person making coffee and greeting at the front door with a spiritual gift of helps versus I'm just doing this. They're, they're, Jesus is actually through His Spirit literally empowering them in that room. Or when I preach, or when we're doing releasing prayer, and, pe- like, and people are using like faith or discernment or words of knowledge, it changes everything. And why is this, again, important? We shared this a little bit in another episode, but like burnout rates drop because you're actually, you're actually accessing a power that's not you. Um, there's joy, not happiness, but you and I can both say this. There's joy because we're, we're doing something that we have been not designed to do from birth, but given the ability to do. 
And when people started hearing in our church that, oh, I need to know my spiritual gift, and that's a whole other you know, podcast, how do I do that? How do we discover that? And they started discovering what they were and how they were empowered and how much power had been given behind that. The expectation level here went through the roof because people are like, I'm going to go do that thing and it's not me, it's us. Well, everything changed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there was so much clarity that came when people realized, oh, what I have as a natural ability uh, is different than uh, what God has given me to to do. And the way that you actually phrased it was you said, this is gift-based ministry now. And so we started using that type of language so that people could identify where they want to serve. Yeah. It's sort of like programs are important, mission, vision, value, all that's great. But the primary question that should be asked is how is the spirit of God? Because 1 Corinthians 12 says, right? And the gifts are the work of the one and the same spirit. The Holy Spirit distributes them to each one just as he determines. This is not this is not a buffet. The best way to say it is spiritual disciplines is a buffet. Choose your own adventure. It's amazing. But spiritual gifts are a sovereignly assigned. You might get one or two or four or three or six or nine. You don't get all 21. Uh, but whatever you've been given, uh, when you discover that in community and, and in other ways, well, then there's a, the, the expectation for God's work goes up in a community. The programs are filled with people who are actually using what God has give, given them. And actually the impact significantly grows. Hmm. And that's because, like you said before, it's actually about the power. Yes, and the um, person. Yeah, 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 because he is there right. when you're using that particular gift. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So I know that you could go on about that particular one and you will another time, (laughs) Uh, but let's move on to another guaranteed place of encounter gathered worship. Mm. Uh, You alluded to how this has actually transformed our worship. I'm not sure if you want to talk about it already, but talk a little bit about why is gathered worship actually a guaranteed place? Yeah. So, you know, there's all sorts of verses people put on Instagram, you know, we used to write on mirrors, (laughs) whatever generation you come from. And we believe them and don't believe them, believe them. So, you know, Psalm 22, God inhabits the praises of his people. That literally means God lives in God's people singing. Hmm. Okay. In yours? Yeah. (laughs) My voice ain't bad, actually. Yeah, no, but that's irrelevant, actually. Uh, No, no, like this is sort of interesting. I, we, we do Sundays, Sundays all the time, you and I together. We, run Sundays. We have grown up doing church, youth retreat, all of it. And I was like, I wonder what the scriptures actually tell me is happening in that room. So God inhabits the praise of his people. I need to really think about that. James says, draw near to God. He draws near to you. Okay. Paul says that the church is the literal new temple. And then, you know, Jesus, you know, in Matthew 18, where two or three gathered my name, I am there. I'm there. And I'm like, oh, okay. Some, something's happening here. And we all struggle with this. And you who are listening, who lead and, and give your best, uh, we know there are Sundays that are epic and Sundays that are awful, you know, <laughs> for a thousand reasons. But remember the conversation we're having right now is what transcends all of that? So I started going, oh, so God's actually present when Christians gather to worship. I need to start saying to our people that's true. And we did. We, we started saying that when we gather, whether it's at a site of 100 people or 1,000 people, 
whether the singing is amazing or a little off, he's present. He's going to be encountered. And what happened here was suddenly people went, oh, I'm actually going to meet him today. And the whole spiritual atmosphere changed in our church overnight. The songs didn't change, actually. Uh, The worship style changed, but it always does. What's new? I mean, we're not liturgists, so it's a different perspective. But I would say, and you and I have been through iterations of this, anytime a group of Christians, before they come to gathered community, say, I'm about to encounter him, because the scripture says he's there uniquely, it changes. So like I, I mean, you and I host and preach and, you know, serve communion. Many times... Um, I'm driving to church and don't want to be at church. You too, I'm sure, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like we do this. We're like, I really don't want to do this today. Mm-hmm. Or I'm not really excited about what's been chosen. Or I don't really like the... T- and I have found myself personally driving to church, ready to preach or lead or attend. And I've said in the car, no matter how I feel, no matter who's leading, no matter if I'm excited or actually depressed or broken or sad or bored, I'm going to meet him. It has radically changed my worship experience because mm-hmm. I'm actually believing what I used to just read. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Allowing yourself to intentionally have that perspective change just changes. I know even if I'm visiting somewhere else, yeah, um, me too. I mean, I love our style of worship here at Sanctus, and so I start to miss it. But if I go into the service with that perspective in mind, because of what I have learned here, it absolutely changes, and I am. I'm ready to encounter him because he's already there. Yeah. And of course, it means it also removes the centricness of us, (laughs) which is good. But uh, uh, the Bible says it's guaranteed. So we should believe it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, You actually mentioned, even while you were talking about this, hey, we've served communion. Yeah. Um, And so communion is actually a guaranteed place of encounter as well. Mm -hmm. And when we grew up, I mean, I, I heard so many times as I was served communion in a service, do this in remembrance of me. Yeah, but 1 Corinthians 11, yeah. You've actually pushed it a little bit more than, than I recall that being explained. It's not just in remembrance. Yeah. Again, it's because of encounter. Yeah, so we, we theologically, and again, a lot of people probably got a little closer to their screens or listening more intently on the plane or on, on their run right now. Here, here's where we land theologically. Um, do we believe that the act of Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, uh, um, communion, is remembrance? Yes, that is where we remember Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's a place, as First Corinthians tells us, to forgive, uh, to ask for forgiveness, try to reconcile with each other if needed, as Jesus taught. Um, and that is all true. Now, you and I both came from a tradition where it was just remembrance only, hard stop. And that was in reaction to Catholicism that, of course, teaches that communion is actually the blood and blood, blood and body of Jesus. And so here we live in between mm-hmm. where we, this is what we would say. Our conviction theologically out of Scripture is it is remembrance, but it's more than remembrance. It's also encounter, as you said. So the phrase we say regularly here is Jesus is not in the wine, the bread, the juice, but he's sure at the table. So he's uniquely here because the word communion literally means to commune. It presumes you're with someone and it's not just with each other, it's with him. So by the spirit, because the Holy Spirit's called the spirit of Christ through 
uh, through the presence of the Spirit. When communion is, sometimes we do come forward. We jokingly say we do Anglican style here and Baptist style here. We do past and we come forward. Uh, no matter what the style is here, we actually believe it is a place we remember. We say to our people, whether an elder or a volunteer gives you communicate, it's actually Jesus giving it to you. It is a place where we encounter him. It's actually a place of forgiveness. Uh, it's a place also where Jesus keeps eating with sinners. And I just, I love this. Jesus was so uh, scandalized by always eating with wrong people. And I just remind our church all the time that Jesus loves eating with sinners and we are that. <laughs> so every time we take communion together, he's eating with sinners. And it, he's reminding us, as the Psalm says, his mercies are new every morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that has also changed the whole fabric of our church because people don't just like, it's not a past tense thing now, I remember. It is a past tense thing, I remember. It's a present tense thing, he's in the room, I need to get right and really thank him. And then as we always say here, it's a future thing because we remind people regularly when we serve communion, one day we will never do this again because at the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, Book of Revelation, we're gonna eat with him face to face. Uh, and I think, I think too, because we're so pro-church and pro-global church, we regularly say things around here like, remember hundreds of millions of people around the world in Southern Sudan and Indonesia and Germany, right? And Brazil have done this. And this is reminding us we're part of a global family. And I've just, I have found that, I would say appropriate theological adjustment has changed my life and the expectation in our community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminds us we're, we're part of something bigger. Uh, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the next one we want to talk about is water baptism. We grew up Baptist church. Yep. Um, and so how we do baptism here doesn't look different. Right. Um, but let's talk about the emphasis. Yeah. So uh, of course we don't believe in, at least in our community that you get the Holy spirit when you're baptized. We don't believe you're saved by the act of baptism. We use language like it's an outward demonstration of an inward work. I always take off my wedding ring, right? Like my wedding ring for you are listening on audio right now. Uh, it, it literally looks like the Lord of the Rings ring actually. <laughs> uh, and I always take it off and I always say like, uh, being Baptist is like putting on your wedding ring. It doesn't make me married. I always make the joke, if I lose it, I might not be married, I might die. Um, 20, 23 years in, I've still got it. But uh, here nor there, it's the public declaration I'm off the market. It's actually the public declaration I'm not allowed to be with anyone else. Mm-hmm. I've vowed myself to my wife, Joanna. So we always use the language that baptism, of course, represents all the things, death and resurrection, celebrating that, new life in Christ, being clean, right? Uh, a symbol of God's God's mercy, a symbol of entrance into community, being clean, all of it. But what we do say is it's when the vows are taken. And I always make the analogy, if a groom wasn't there to take and witness the vows, that would be really weird. Of course he's in the room uniquely. When someone's being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you know, Matthew 28, going to all the world, he said, I'm with you very, you know, to the very end of the age. I, I am present. I, I'm there. And so we say to our people, when you watch someone baptize or you finally obey, mm-hmm. he's at the tank. This is like he's, he's witnessing the vows. Even that statement has moved it from, isn't that an amazing testimony to, oh my goodness, he's in the room. Mm-hmm. Changes everything. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The last one that we want to talk about, uh, John, is one of the more difficult ones. Yeah. 
Um, even earlier today, I sat in a pastoral care meeting talking to someone about uh, this particular uh, matter. Yeah. And uh, so help, help us to understand specifically how this is a guaranteed place of encounter. And the last one we want to talk about is suffering. Yeah. So we got to be really careful about this. Um, I mean, you and I, from our upbringing, almost lived in environments where suffering was avoided or um, not on the ground it wasn't avoid- avoided. You lived in it, but it was never theologically talked through well right. at all. So here's what we say all the time. As I read scripture, um, it would seem to me that when we suffer for the sake of the gospel, that's a guaranteed place of encounter. Not when I get cancer. Uh, that's, that's, not a, that's not what we're talking about. Not when there's a tragic car accident. Uh, not when I'm aging and it's really difficult. Not, not that suffering. That's, a, that's different. But when we suffer uh, for the sake of the kingdom of God, that is a guaranteed place. Uh, that's how we commune actually with our suffering Savior. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I've said this many times. Paul, you know, in, near the end of his life, writes Philippians from a jail cell. And it's all about joy, which is in itself like, oh, my goodness. And I know lots of you listening have preached through that. But he says, you know, I think it's, it's Philippians 3, I think. Is it 310? Yeah, yeah. I, I want to know Christ. And I'm like, hold on. I always joke and say, you want to know Christ? Like, you're Paul. You're the end of your run. You've got, what? I'm like, anyway, it's, it's a good challenge for me to keep going. But then he says, I want to know the power of his resurrection and I want to participate in his sufferings. And all of North American cultures like avoid suffering. Suffering's awful. It's bad. In certain churches, almost like heterodoxy churches, say suffering is a sign of God's judgment on you or you don't have enough faith and all that health and wealth stuff, which is so destructive. So, so I'm like, okay, Paul, Paul and Jesus and Peter use this evocative language about how Jesus is close to those who suffer for these things. I was like, oh, we need to talk about this. Now, one out of eight Christians around the world right now is under direct persecution, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's, we're living at a time of history where there are more Christians persecuted than there ever has been in history. You know, one out of eight Christians is under, you know, direct threat, rape, persecution, church burnings, government changing scripture. Like it's, you know, you can go and open doors and all those organizations and see uh, what's happening, even while we're recording this in India in the last three months, it's been brutal in one province. You know, I think 200 churches have been burned and people running for their lives, all sorts of stuff. So yes, but the problem I find with Western Christians is it's an all or nothing attitude about, uh, about suffering that actually ends up hurting us. So I watch people on Instagram all the time and on podcasts saying, oh, we're not persecuted in the West. You know, our brothers in North Korea are persecuted and they're right, but they're also wrong. So I love how Open Doors defined persecution. And I shared this with our, I've shared this with our community. Persecution is any hostility experienced as a result of one's identification with Jesus. This includes hostile attitudes, words, and actions towards Christians. So when you declare Jesus is the only way to heaven, when you say God is creator and has the final say in sexuality and gender, when you choose not to lie and cheat at work when your boss tells you to and you do it because you are a Christian that is persecution on a small scale but it's real Uh, this never applies to our political views (laughs) I just want to say that out loud this does not apply if you're a jerk this does not apply if you break the law like you can't say oh I'm being persecuted no you shoplifted (laughs) like give me a break 
Um, but when you declare, for example, that there's a heaven and hell, when you declare that sincerity does not change someone's eternal destiny, uh, when you stand up for the life of the unborn, because God tells us to, and the life of the elderly, when you start saying medically assisted suicide is actually sin according to scripture, and you also defend immigrants and their dignity, um, you'll be persecuted. And, you know, I said this to our church, and I've said it many times. Um, I, I think I said, let me say this loud and clear, as orthodox, confessional, historic, biblically informed Christians, we will always be attacked by the left and the right at the same time because we belong to another kingdom. And so we're pro-life and pro-immigrant in Jesus' name. We boldly declare Jesus is the Son of God and the only way to heaven, and yet we would defend uh, the right for anyone to say anything in our country. We give ourselves as slaves to Jesus, and so we choose not to uh, do things sexually, even if we'd want to do them, because he says no, but we would always, always resist violence against anyone of any sexual orientation, because it's wrong. That doesn't fit in our world. <laughs> so um, if you suffer because of those things, Jesus is in the room. This is how you participate in suffering. Peter says in 1 Peter, this is normal, not exceptional. The other thing, Angela, I'll say as we're coming near the end of this is uh, the other guaranteed place when you suffer is self-denial. And this is really important. When we crucify our flesh, when we deny ourselves of something we want or love or something we feel that we are because God has asked us to love Christ more than our loves, Jesus is in the room. And there are so many people, and you and I know this in our own walks, and we know this as pastors. There are so many people who deconstructed their faith or walked away from the church because they never understood that self-denial, A, was non-negotiable, <laughs> but B, that it actually is worship. So when I hang out with people who've given up lifestyles or life or jobs or denied things they, they hold so dear, I always thank them for their sacrifice and their worship. And every time people are like, what do you mean? I'm like, no, 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 this, this is offering to God. This, you're, I'm not denying that you love these things or I love these things, but you've chosen to love Christ more than your other loves. And that's a guaranteed place of encounter. But if you don't frame it like encounter and worship, then it becomes oppressive, it becomes duty, and there's no life in it, and it's not worth it, and you'll leave. And I just, to me, it is, we need more of this conversation, not less. Yeah, I think it's very freeing for someone to know, oh, I'm not just being countercultural. Yeah. It's actually worship. Yeah, and, and when I say no, though it's incredibly hard, and our culture says don't say no because that's bad for you, you're actually like, no, and I, I know he's in the room. He's in the room. Now, all of these areas, all of these places where uh, Jesus' presence is guaranteed, is there any way that we could actually experience one of these places but but not experience him? Like, is it possible to, to block or to dim the experience? Yeah, so this is also really important, especially for the preachers listening or those who are thinking through this strategically. So these environments are guaranteed. Jesus, by his spirit, is there. 
And if you say to your people or in your own walk, he's there, he's there. Now, again, it's not always amazing. It's not always like fire and Gabriel's showing up and life changed and deeply emotional. It's like much of the time, it's just about believing what the scripture says. Sometimes it's quite profound. But, 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 uh, we got to remember, we're actually encountering a person in the environment. And the person is the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I say this to my more conservative friends who sometimes struggle with the role of the Holy Spirit. I said, there is no there is no encounter you've had with Jesus or the Father that was without the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the only door to Jesus. Jesus is the only door to the Father. So every encounter you've, every experience and encounter you've ever had in your Christian life is always through the Holy Spirit. Always. That's why he's the Spirit of Christ. Okay. But Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Spirit of God with whom you've been sealed to the day of redemption. Now, this is really important. So if we um, get in patterns of sin, or give, you know, foothold to the demonic in our life, or start getting hooked by a worldly system, we can grieve the one where we want to go meet in the environment. So um, personal holiness, God's merciful and he's very kind, but personal holiness is critical. So uh, the person you go to meet can be grieved, means to dampen, to mute, to almost put in a corner. So, you know, I'm asked all the time because I talk about spiritual gifts, as you said, <laughs> You know, can I lose my spiritual gifts? Oh, never. They're, they're sovereignly assigned for your life, but the power can dim greatly if you grieve the one you're working with. Spiritual disciplines are incredible, but if you're actually not really walking after Christ and not living a holy life, then they become powerless to transform and to hear because it's almost like you ring the doorbell, open the door and say, I don't want to talk to you. Right? Like it's, that, that's sort of what it feels like. And so it's really important that um, we don't grieve the one that we're trying to encounter. And so the role of personal holiness at the center of this web, this ecosystem of places of encounter matters. And as a side note, I feel prompted to say this. I don't know why. Someone will, somewhere, somewhere, someone somewhere will tell us why. Um, that's why your personal holiness matters to your whole church. Mm-hmm. Because the more personally holy the whole church is, the more the Spirit of God is not grieved, the more the Spirit of God is not grieved, the greater the power, the presence, the love, and the output in a local community. Yeah. People are going to listen to that one section over and over, John. Yeah. I think um, one of my favorite illustrations that you have used uh, is about the power source. And you talk about like a gas fireplace um, and how uh, when you turn it on or turn it up, you can fan the flame. Um, and where is that power source actually coming from? Sometimes you can plug into the wrong source. Right. And so all that imagery is really helpful in this context. Totally. And I think, you know, um, uh, for you who are listening or watching right now, like uh, one of the, uh, hopefully one of the key questions you're now asking is, okay, uh, some of you are going, I knew all that. Who cares? Some of you are like, uh, wow, some of that's challenging and new. Uh, so what? Right, I mean, there's the so what, and uh, here's here's maybe just um, for a few minutes as we come to the end that we can talk this through. What we've done here is we've taught once or twice a year, reminding our people of the guaranteed places of encounter. Now, in our in our church, out of those guaranteed places of encounter, we we came up with like five words we use: celebrate big, you know, celebrate big, connect small walk with Jesus, engagement. Like we've, we've got that very churchy stuff next, but we've helped our people see that all of that language is rooted in the guaranteed places of encounter. Mm-hmm. But the, the, 
The thing that I think was really helpful in our context is what we've done is once or twice a year, we actually have our whole church evaluate themselves. And it's not, um, I've done these four things, so I'm okay. It's actually on a continuum where you actually evaluate how am I doing in these guaranteed places of encounter? Am I close or am I far? And so the idea is that it's almost like a weigh-in or a checkup that once or twice a year, every person has the opportunity to ask in the environments that I know are, are real and the way Sanctus talks about them, am I even in them? Do I even care? And where do I need to get sort of closer? So it doesn't become a, a I've done these four classes. It actually becomes this is where I am right now, mm-hmm. not where I was last September and not where I am tomorrow. And then from a staff perspective, uh, we sometimes are able to get feedback where we go, oh my goodness, actually our whole church is crashing in this one over here. Uh, what do we do with that or what can we do with that? Yeah, I mean, it, it impacts our church planning and where we're going to go from there. How has this approach to discipleship really changed you personally and then maybe even a little bit more about our church? Yeah, so we'll end where we began. Expectation. Uh, when Christians who have had a really bad week, when Christians who are having a really boring time in their life, when Christians are like, this is amazing and I love Jesus, I'm all in, and when Christians who are like, I'm Thomas and basically unless I touch Jesus' wounds, I'm out. When a whole group of Christians actually believes that they're still going to encounter him, what has happened here and what's happened in my own life is that I have just accepted reality as God sees it. And it's changed everything. Worship culture changed. Serving changed. It's not just all of that. People start who'd been in church their whole lives started saying, I get to meet him before heaven. Because our discipleship, which is the everyday rhythm of Christian life, was rooted in guaranteed encounter, not guaranteed information. And it doesn't always work well. There's still system issues. There's still sin we still have a thousand new people joining us every week and leaving. Like, you know, I mean, it's a true in every church, right? This, it never ends. But if you root your discipleship and encounter and guaranteed play, it just changes people's postures and expectations. Now, what's interesting is some people actually then say, I don't want to be around anymore because it's not just information. I have to encounter him and I don't want to. Mm. And that's a, you know, that's honest. But I would just say it's transformed It's transformed our church because we come with a now a guaranteed expectation that is not over or under. It's not overhyped and it's not under like, "Ah, forget it. It's actually, no, he says it, so it's true. So I'm going to come ready. And I think it's transformed discipleship. And I would say it doesn't matter if you're listening in a church in India or you're in a mega church in the Southern United States or you're a small Anglican church plant in England. Like it doesn't matter about style or size or ethnicity, or gender, what what we've just talked about transcends all of this and can be applied into any environment with, by the way, no money backing because it's just true. It is. It's incredibly powerful. Thank you, John. Yeah, thanks, everyone. And um, 
hopefully uh, this will help a lot of you listening. I know Angie and I have really benefited personally from this and we really think you can too. So we want to thank you for hanging out today with us on the Perseverance Podcast. Of course, we want to always encourage you to pass this along to friends, to link people to this, to like it, and afford it to others. We look forward to hanging out with you again as we keep trying to wrestle out how to persevere in these really wild times, knowing that the gates of hell will not prevail, and he's still with us in the room. Uh, God bless. We'll see you at the next episode.